a bulletin that the, the sermon title this morning is, You Can't Triple Stamp a Double Stamp. And uh, some of you know right off the bat what I'm talking about there. It's a clip from an older movie called Dumb and Dumber, and it's about as dumb as the title suggests. Um, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And so just a, a quick overview that helps give some context. There are two 30- or 40-year-old men acting as complete children in a car, flicking each other in the ear, and they have a rule that once you double stamp a rule, you can't change the rules for car fights. And the other guy tries to triple stamp the double stamp to change the rules, and the, the other friend says, no, 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 you can't triple stamp a double stamp. The rules are set. You can't change them. You can't change the rules. Maybe it's, you've heard somebody say, slug bug, no slug bugs back. It's the same kind of idea. You, you can't change the rules once you formalize what they are, right? Um, and so, so this morning, what Paul is going to be talking about is how you can't change the rules. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. And, and this will make sense if you zoom out just a bit and see the outline of the book of Galatians. So the last couple of weeks, months, we've been seeing Galatians 1 and 2. Paul defines the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. And it reaches its pinnacle at the end of chapter 2. We were here three weeks ago. We know that no human being is justified by works of the law, for by works of the law no one will be justified because I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. He lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. That's the gospel. God is holy. I am not. Jesus saves. Christ is my life. Amen. Right? So that, that's chapters 1 and 2. Paul's defining the gospel. And then you get to 3 and 4, and Paul said, now let me defend the gospel. There's various questions you're going to have, maybe objections. Could it really be this way? And you've got to understand that to get our passage here. And then you get to, to the end, chapters 5 and 6, and Paul says, now here's how you live out and live in the gospel. Here's what that looks like, all right? Um, here's why this is super helpful for us this morning. Paul's going to say that God's plan of redemption, God's plan to save his people, will never change. From eternity past into all eternity, it will never change. And this is really, really good news for serious sinners. If you're here and you're like, man, Justin, I, th there's stuff in my head, there's stuff in my closet that I can't hardly think about at all. I certainly could never dwell on it. Galatians 3 is awesome news for you. Stuff you say, Justin, there's no way on earth. It'll be a cold day down below before I could ever say that to somebody else to let them in on my dirty little secrets. Galatians 3, 15 to 18, is awesome news for you. It's awesome news. Here's the sermon in three words. Promise over performance. Promise over performance. If you made it five words, it would be God's promise over your performance. Promise over performance. That's what Paul's saying here in Galatians 3, and I look forward to explaining that to you and hopefully seeing how his promise is infinitely better than your performance could ever be. Because as humans, what we often do is we look at God, we look at ourselves, and we wonder if he loves us because of our performance or simply because he promised to love us. We wonder if at some point in time he might actually get sick of us. Now, now many of you have been around 
church for a while, you've heard things, you've heard about the Bible, or maybe you even haven't been around church for a while, but intuitively you know, God is supposed to love me because God is love, not because I'm good. You know that in your head, but in your heart you start to wonder, but, but does his love start to fade a little bit? Is he not as intense in showing love to me? Is he not scooping me up with open arms like he once did? Can it ever drift? We were driving around yesterday, like, you know, it's a Saturday, we're going to soccer games, we're going to homecoming, we're going to the apple orchard, and, uh, and what came on Spotify was a Taylor Swift song that I wonder if sometimes it's how we think about God. The song was, we are never, ever getting back together. Can you do something stupid enough, like Taylor's boyfriend did, for God to say on the playlist of heaven, we are never, ever getting back together? And the answer is no. So Paul's going to say, no, he could never be that way. That song isn't in God's playlist. Amen. That's good news. We wonder, we wonder, does God enter into human relationships with prenups, with an out clause. On the flight of our life, if we get jacked up enough, might God press the eject button on us? You might say, Justin, for me, it's like I thought God's love was written on my heart in permanent marker. And I wonder sometimes in my heart of hearts if my sin and my rebellion and my selfishness doesn't start to work as some sort of like a, a rubbing alcohol where I can start to just rub and rub and rub and what once was permanent in his love written on my heart starts to become a little bit erasable. And Paul's gonna say no. No, it's impossible. Maybe one other way of saying this is to say sometimes we know that God is our father but we think of him a bit like our boss. Because a good boss might actually fire you at one point in time. A good father will never fire you. A bad father might move on, but a good father never will. Praise God that we don't have a heavenly boss who might fire us if our performance is not what it needs to be. We have a heavenly father who promises that he has set his love on us and will always keep his love on us no matter what. Amen? Promise over performance. So Paul's gonna build this argument and he's actually gonna go all the way back to the very beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, the very first book of the Bible to help us to see that this will never change. His plan of redemption will never change. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. The rules aren't going to change. There are no prenups. There is no eject button. He's a heavenly father, not a heavenly boss. And we'll see that in three basic points. There's a covenant from God That'll be number one. And then number two, there'll be the challenge from man. And number three, we'll see the change in you. The covenant from God, the challenge from man, the change in you. So let's, um, let's take a look. The covenant from God, that's number one. Look back at your copy of the scriptures. I hope you'll keep that open in Galatians 3. And we're gonna look at verses 15 and 16 and see this covenant made clear. Paul writes, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, 
but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul starts out, and he says to give this human example, nobody changes a covenant after it's been ratified. That's verse 15. The idea that's communicated there is like a last will and testament. And so Paul's saying, imagine your parents have completed their last will and testament. They've gone to the attorney. They've signed it. All the paperwork's done. They pass away 20 years later. And then upon their death, your sibling says, my circumstances have changed. I'm not as well off as I once was. I need a higher percentage of the inheritance than what they had said. And you say, no, even in a human covenant, it's been ratified. You can't change it after the fact. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. It is what it is. This is what the rules are. This is what we've approved. And if human beings, as fickle as we are and changing as we are, know in that situation you can't change the rules, then how much more in God's covenant would we know once it's set, it's set, and you can't change it? That's verse 15. Verse 16, then, we read, Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So, so Paul goes back to the very beginning, Genesis 12, and says, hey, let's, let's remember the promises made to Abraham. This is Genesis 12. And what's critical for you to see, and we'll put this on the screen in a minute, not yet, is in Genesis 12 to see the promises made to Abraham, that God says, I will set my love on you, and you will be my people. Your people will be my people. It's completely dependent upon God's promise, not Abraham's performance. Promise over performance from the very beginning. And so in Genesis 12, what we'll see in a second on the screen, I'm going to have like bold or underline or something like that to say I will to make it more clear. Look at this on the screen. Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see that? It rides on God's promise, not Abraham's performance. God says, I will, the end, my promise. That's Genesis 12. Three chapters later, once the terms of the covenant have been laid out, God and Abraham ratify the covenant. And it's one of the most striking images of how they, they essentially sign the covenant. They, they get a bunch of animals together and they cut them in half. And they separate them out and it makes a little walkway between them up to an altar. Okay? And then the idea is we've agreed on the terms of the covenant and if you don't keep your end of the deal, the contract, the covenant, whatever language you want to use there, what is going to happen to you is what happened to those animals. You'll be cut up and cut off from the rest of yourself. And at the outset, you think, wait a second, that sounds like the exact opposite of everything you've been saying, Justin. I thought it was promise, not performance, and now there's this deal that if you don't keep up the terms of the covenant, like you're going to be cut off. What's going on? Here's what God does. You should go back and read Genesis 15 later this afternoon because it's awesome. But the end of verse... End of chapter 15, I think it's like verse 17. God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And the sun goes down, and it gets to be night. It's pitch black. The carcasses of these animals are lined up. And there's a, a smoking pot filled with fire and a flaming torch that God enters through the passageway for himself 
and for Abraham. He says, Abraham, I know that you won't be able to keep up your end of the bargain, so I'm gonna go in for myself and back and in for yourself and back, and I'm gonna seal this covenant of my love that I'm gonna set on you based on my promise, not based on your performance, Abraham. God's promise, God's promise, his covenant with Abraham is based on his own promise, not on Abraham's performance. You see that from the very beginning. It's abundantly clear. And then Paul takes a quick turn. That would have been expected. Every, they would have, I think, understood that fairly well. But he pivots, and he says something very surprising. Look what he says next. Verse 16, find my spot here. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, why would that be surprising? Because when God makes a promise to Abraham, he says, I'm going to give this to your offspring, naturally you think, well, over generations, that's a lot of people. Offspring is a plural term. And Paul says, actually, that's supposed to be understood singular, one offspring, your offspring who is Christ. You see how that would be surprising. Like, wait, what? Paul, have we been reading the Old Testament wrong? And he'd say, yes, you have. You might have seen the Old Testament a bit like an art museum. And as you go down, you see pictures of Old Testament saints. And you see the stories of God's deliverance. And you see various images along the way. And you think at the end of the hall of the art museum that Jesus is this like bigger, better picture, this mural on the wall that sort of supersedes and surpasses all the others. And what Paul's saying, no, Jesus isn't a bigger, better saint. He's the backlighting for the whole thing that when you turn on the light of Jesus, you see the whole thing in a totally different light. Like, whoa, I misunderstood every single part there if I didn't understand it in the light of Jesus. Let me give you just a couple examples here. All through the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a vine that doesn't bear fruit. Let me show you just a couple here. Psalm 80, verse 8, we read, You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. God says, Israel, you're a vine, I brought you out of Egypt, I delivered you, I drove out the nations in Canaan, and I planted you there. You are my vine. Isaiah 5. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. God's vine is Israel. Jeremiah 2, we read, Yet I planted you like a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? You're my vine. I've planted you, but why aren't you bearing any fruit? And then when Jesus shows up in John 15... He says, I am the true vine. You are the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine. You thought the offspring, all these generations and generations, they were the vine? No, Jesus, I'm the true vine. You want to bear fruit? You've been trying to bear fruit as the vine yourself, and that's why you're not bearing fruit, because you're not the vine. You've got to be in me. And if you're not abiding in me, you won't bear fruit. You could read this in other ways of Old Testament saints. You could think of David this way. Right? What's the message of the life of David? And take the story of Goliath. Well, there's a great giant, and David had courage in the face of great difficulty. He set aside his fears, trusted in God, won a great victory. You need to have 
faith in the face of fear, be courageous and go slay the giants in your life. That is not the message of David. He says, no, Jesus is the true, the better David, who would come and take on the giants that could actually kill you, the giants of death and hell and sin and Satan. And he would slay them. And he would win the victory. And he would give the victory to you, his people, even though you didn't lift a finger for the victory. Just like the Israelites didn't lift a finger for the victory that David won over Goliath. Or you could think of Queen Esther. What's the story? Esther, she comes before the king. She realizes her people are in danger. She speaks truth to power, you might say. And people are saved. What do I need to do? Recognize the fear in my life, stand up in a difficult spot, and speak truth to power. That's what I need to do. That's the story of Esther for my life. No. You recognize Esther is being illuminated by Jesus to say Esther gave up an earthly palace, but Jesus gave up a much greater heavenly palace. Esther, Esther risked her life. Jesus willingly gave his life. Esther said, if I perish... Jesus said, when I perish, but it's worth it to give up myself to save my people. So the the whole Old Testament is leading us to Christ so that we can then say God's covenant to Abraham was based on God's promise, not his performance. And if you are in Christ, then God's covenant with you is based on his promise to love you and Christ's performance, his perfect life, not your performance. The key question then, all of that building up to Are you in Christ? That's the core question here. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Say, Jesus, I see that you came, you lived the perfect life that I couldn't live, you died the death I should have died, I'm calling out to you to forgive me of my sin and to liberate me from my sin so that I can follow you with everything I've got. Instead of being on Justin's plan for Justin's life, I'm turning and I'm on Jesus' plan and I'm doing everything he's called me to do. And when I don't measure up, I recognize that it was promised over performance from the very beginning and I must abide in the true vine to bear much fruit, not white knuckle it, work a little harder, and carry it myself. This is the covenant from God that Paul is going back to the very beginning and saying, this is how it always was for Abraham. And as you track it through, and when you understand the Bible correctly, you understand the same way God made the covenant to Abraham for those who are in Christ is the way the covenant is for you. Promise over performance. That brings us to our second point, the challenge for man. Verse 17. Look back at your copy of the scriptures, would you? We read, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You might read that, or you might hear Bruce read it, or me read it, and just wonder what in the world is going on here. What does that have to do with us? Quite a lot. (laughs) Let me share. The Galatians had misunderstood, and essentially what they were doing is saying, our performance trumps God's promise. Our performance is more important than what God's 
promise was. I'm finding my identity, my deepest identity, in what I do and how I perform as a religious person, not in God's promise to me in Christ. That's what they were doing. There's one major problem with that, and this is what Paul points out. The covenant to Abraham was made. See the stage as a timeline here? Here's the covenant with Abraham. The promise has been made. Paul says, guys, you misunderstood. The law, God's law to Moses, it didn't come till over 400 years later. The covenant's been established for a really long time. His love was set on you because he set his love on you, not because of the law. Law keeping can't help you here. And, and so what so many of us do is we misunderstand that and we think the Bible is basically around the law of God and the, the, Bible, the Bible's about me and what I need to do for God. And he's saying, no, no, no. The Bible's primarily about God and what he's done for you in Christ. And so many of us will see the Bible basically as a sort of morality book, a code of conduct. Where in the Old Testament, you have the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, you have the Sermon on the Mount, which are two of the greatest ethical teachings in the history of the world. So don't minimize their ethical and moral value, but that's not basically and most fundamentally what the Bible's about. And when we begin to see the Bible as mostly a code of conduct, we end up thinking, when we come to the Bible, what we need the most is three tips for parenting, or four steps to a healthy marriage, or five principles to have a well-ordered financial life. And you just layer law upon law upon law one week after the next. Do this, do that, do this, do that. And it trains us to measure ourselves to say, how well am I doing the three steps, four principles, five pathways? Instead of to say, Christ, what have you done for me? The challenge from the Galatians and the challenge from us then is we want to focus in on our performance more than on God's promise. That's the challenge for man. If you're wondering, like, point two, what's Justin talking about here? He keeps going, and I don't know where. That's it. So what this looks like, then, is when we're bad, we try to deflect our badness. It might look something like this. You say, Justin, I know I can be a little manipulative at times. True. But it's not like I lied to the American people to get elected. I deflect my badness. I'm not that bad. Or you say, Justin, it's, it's sort of fun to flirt with that other individual in the office. And I mean, I don't know. Maybe you guys call that an emotional affair. I don't, I don't know what. But it's not like I'm Jeffrey Epstein here. I deflect my badness. I'm not that bad. You say, Justin, I, I have some anger issues at times. Sure. I mean, who of us doesn't? Who's perfect? None of us are. But it's not like I'm the Taliban wiping out villages at a time. I'm not like that bad, like those people. You say, sure, I, I have some prejudices. I, I mean, I, I guess we all do in one way or another, don't we? Like, I'm, that's all of us, don't judge me. I don't always believe the best of others, but it's not like I'm the people on that other cable news network. And so we, when we're bad, we try to deflect ourselves because we're so focused on our performance that we're not clinging to Christ's promise. Here's the interesting thing about that. That whole section of our badness, and we try to deflect our badness, you don't actually have to be a Christian to agree with all of that. Right? 
The part that flips it on its head in a crazy way that differentiates a Christian from someone who's not a Christian is you recognize, I have to repent of my goodness too. Because when I'm performing well, I think I'm doing good, I try to inflate that goodness. And I take credit for it. So when I'm bad, I deflect and blame it on somebody else. And when I'm good, I inflate it and take the credit for myself. And so when I forgive somebody, I'm proud of myself for forgiving instead of being astonished that God in Christ would ever forgive me. And when you hear about the spring offering for the Fergusons and you decide we're going to give generously and sacrificially and radically, we're proud of ourselves like, man, I'm really planting my flag in the ground here. I'm helping send the gospel to the ends of the earth. Rather than being amazed at the generosity of Christ and him pouring out his blood on our behalf. Far greater generosity than any amount of money we'll ever give. If we hold our tongue, we're proud of ourselves for our restraint. Like, man, there are so many other people I know that would have flown right off the handle there. And we're not just drawn in at wonder that Jesus would hold his tongue when being mocked while being executed as an innocent man. So in our badness, we deflect and blame somebody else. In our goodness... We inflate it and take extra credit for it. All the while, the challenge from us and from the Galatians is to cling to our performance instead of Christ's promise. This hits us every single day of our lives. It's a, it's a bit like this. Let me put it this way. This hasn't happened yet today. This is fortunate for my example. Had it happened, I would have had to change. You're in church and your phone rings. And what goes through your mind is, oh, insert word that you think you shouldn't say. And then you're overcome with guilt and shame, like, oh my word, like I said this in church, is God extra mad because I was in church and there are so many people around me that heard me say that and what are they gonna think of me and how do I talk about this with my kids and oh, yikes, what are we gonna do here? Well, I know, it only happened once, not that big a deal, I mean, God will always forgive me. And we start to deflect. But everybody around is tempted with a sense of superiority, like, man, what bum leaves his phone on in church? Like, don't they know to put that thing on vibrate, turn it off, leave it in the car? Like, I would never distract from the word of God like that. Arrogant sinner, repent. Like, don't you see how this works itself out? Like, all the time in our life, we're either saying, I'm not that bad, it's not my fault, or, you know what, I'm better than I thought I was, and I probably should get some more credit for it. We're clinging to our own performance. Everybody does this. Cling to Christ's promise. You see, performance-based living is a bit like being on a stair-stepper machine. The harder you work to go anywhere, you press and you just go down. And about the time you feel like you're exerting all of your effort and you're finally going somewhere, one foot goes down, the other foot starts to go up. Maybe I'm getting somewhere. And as soon as you start to go somewhere, what happens to you? You're going to ride back down again. You just don't make any, you don't go anywhere in performance-based living. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that the gospel is like fuel in a car, and the law is a bit like GPS. 
Can I explain to you, this is why we always want to come back to the promise, not to your performance, because if you had to choose between one or the other, let's say you could have unlimited data on your phone, GPS to go wherever you wanted, but you had no fuel. It doesn't matter how much GPS you have, you're not getting anywhere. You say, well, Justin, I could walk. Well, you have no fuel, you have no, what, what is it, ATP, is that, you know, physiologist, is that what your body needs to go somewhere, like you can't do glycolysis, something like that? Like, yeah, you're still going nowhere. You have no energy. But if you are, have a full tank with the gospel to carry you wherever you go and you have no GPS, it might take you a while to get where you're going. You're going to make a few wrong turns. You're going to end up on a dead-end street. But when you hit the dead-end street, you'll never be out of gas at the end of the dead-end street. The fuel of the gospel will fill you and will carry you where you can eventually get to where Christ is calling you. That's why it's so important that you recognize that promise is over performance and more important to cling to Christ than your own performance. Okay, Justin, I get it. The covenant, long time ago, nothing's changed. Can't triple stamp a double stamp. I get that I'm, I'm worse than I thought. You've made me feel bad, good, not good. What do I do with it? How does this help me today, tomorrow, Tuesday, and so forth? Thanks for asking. That's the next point. I love when that happens. Number three, the change in you. How does the covenant from God and the challenge from man result in a change in you? The Bible's not here just for our information. It's for our transformation. How does this transform us? Galatians 3, 18. Take a look back at your copy of the scriptures. Verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What is this inheritance being referenced here? What's well, acceptance before God? A couple weeks ago, we said justification was being declared good with God or righteous before God. How does inheritance come? Verse 18, look back again. I want to point out one thing. If you're a word circler or underliner or highlighter, this is really important to get. Verse 18 Last phrase, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Circle the word gave, underline it, box it, highlight it, whatever you do. Gave is a verb. If you take the verb form and go to a noun, you get the word grace. Grace is a noun. The, turn that into a verb. In this context, you get gave. In other words, Paul says, this promise was graced to Abraham. It was given to him. I like the way the NIV actually says this. It says, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. It's a helpful translation, I think, there. In other words, Abraham didn't deserve the promises of God, and neither do you. Paul's saying the promises of God are like the oceans, and your obedience, your righteousness, your performance is like islands. And you might be a little island of performance. Like, I'm, I'm a really, really bad person. I don't get it right often, Justin. I'm, my obedience is kind of like Hawaii compared to the Pacific Ocean. Like, it doesn't come close to measuring up. And others of you might have grown in grace a little bit. You've been sanctified. You're becoming holy. And you're like, Justin, I don't want to be arrogant, but I have grown. And, and maybe I feel more like my island is North America. Can I just tell you, even if you are the most sanctified, righteous, well-behaved person on the earth, purest motives, 
Your island of righteousness of North America doesn't compare to all the oceans of the world. The promises of God envelop that. His righteousness envelops it. You don't measure up. And so what growing in grace looks like then, it looks like a recognition of my own sinfulness, a growing recognition of my own sinfulness, that when I don't have to cling to my own performance, I can recognize what God gave to me, I don't have to defend myself, then I can start to be honest and transparent about where my performance doesn't measure up. So a growing sense of sin in your life, a growing awareness of sin in your life, is a mark that I'm living by promise, not performance. Let me say that again. A growing awareness of the sin in your life is a mark that you're living more by promise than performance. Let me show you this in in the scriptures. Paul would write about his own sinfulness on multiple occasions. And I think it's interesting. If you look at the order in which various books of the New Testament were written, you see a change in the way Paul speaks of himself. Track this with me. This is really interesting. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. This is one of the earliest letters, perhaps the earliest that Paul wrote. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He says, there's, there's these apostles, and I used to persecute the church of God. I killed Christians. I was a religiously motivated terrorist, and I really shouldn't be called an apostle because I see that I'm very sinful. Okay, Paul. Next, we go to Ephesians 3. Paul writes a little bit later. He writes, I am the very least of all the saints. Now, do you hear the difference? Paul said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not very good. And as he gets older, and as he grows in grace and lives more by promise and less by performance, he says, well, it's not actually that I'm just the least of the apostles. I'm actually the least of all the saints. I'm not as good as I thought I was. And then we keep going. A little bit later, he writes 1 Timothy 1, and he writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Do you hear him growing in graces? Yeah, at first I just said, well, I'm the least of the apostles. And then I let the gospel come into my heart and it's working its way, it's changing me. And now I say, I'm the least of the saints. And now I keep living by promise, not by performance. And I can say, man, I am the foremost of sinners. This should be the model of our lives. And, and then when you find the sin in your life, you've got two choices. You can apply the promise of the gospel in your life Or you can apply the promise of better performance from yourself. That's critical, right? It's one thing to know I'm a sinner, to be aware of my sin, but in that you must apply Christ's performance in the gospel to your heart. Say, I know I'm clinging to Christ's righteousness, not my own. Instead of saying, I'll do better. I can fix this. I can try harder. It's a critical difference there. Say it this way. As you grow in grace, you live more by promise, less by performance. You recognize I'm more sick than I thought I was. When you're sick, you can choose to go to the doctor or you can choose not to go to the doctor. But eventually, you will have to go to the doctor, right? I had a friend. I hope this makes you laugh a little bit. He, uh, in the middle of basketball season, got a cold. And he wanted to prove to himself and to the team that he was mentally tougher than his cold. So in the middle of January, 
for an hour to two hours a day, he put on his jammies and went on the back patio and drank his coffee and sat on the patio for one to two hours a day to prove that he was mentally tougher than his cold. And what happens when you do that? Your cold turns into pneumonia and you miss three weeks of the season. And we said, dude, you're an idiot. Stop doing that. Like, what's wrong with you? You can't be mentally tougher than a cold. Like, look, you guys knew that athletes had a few screws loose, and this is just further evidence of that. And we laugh at it. But is that not basically what we do with our own sin? I see I've got it. I see I've got the sickness. I could go to the doctor. I could apply the gospel to my heart. But I'm just going to white-knuckle it. I'm going to try a little harder. I'm going to tell myself I can do better. I can be mentally tougher than my anger. And we just get sicker and sicker and sicker and wonder what's going on. So the good news is this. You're here, and your sin sickness hasn't killed you yet. You can still go to the doctor. You can still find healing. And the great news is I'm not your doctor. I'm like his nurse. I can tell you where he's at, how to get to him. I can help you get there. Maybe I'm like the, the receptionist. I don't know. I, I can help you get to the doctor. I can tell you here's where he's at, and I can tell you what he's going to say. Here's what he's going to say. You see your sickness? You see your sin? You see your performance doesn't measure up? Take it to Jesus. Jot down Psalm 51. Just go to Psalm 51 this afternoon and confess to him so that what's in the dark, hidden corner of your life can be brought out into the light. The light has overcome the darkness, and it will overcome the darkness in your heart, but it must be exposed. David would say in Psalm 51 that he will be purged and washed and will become even whiter than snow. <laughs> and this is why it's so critical that you believe that promise is greater than performance, because you might be wondering, it is so dark, Justin, I don't know if you even have a sense of how dark it is. I don't think it can be turned whiter than snow. Maybe it can be turned a little bit gray. Say, so, no, believe the promises of the gospel that it can be turned whiter than snow because Jesus bled and died for you. And after you confess to God, we read in James 5 that there's healing when you confess to other brothers and sisters. You're made whole by that, that you say, I can put a tangible face on this. I can say what was in the secret that I confess privately because I'm living by God's promise and not my performance. I can bring it to a brother and say, I gotta confess to you, I sinned in this way today. It was ugly. It is ugly. My heart is not where it should be right now. I need you to pray for me. Notice that James 5, it's not just confess and be done with it. It's confess and pray for one another. Now that's scary, isn't it? So I'm gonna tell you the worst thing I did this week. I'm gonna tell you the worst thing I said or worse thought this week because I believe the promise of the gospel that it will heal my soul to take what's in the darkness and bring it to the light. I know that God gave this to Abraham by a promise. He graced it to him and he's gracing it to you to believe the gospel this morning. That's the call. That God's promise trumps your performance. If I can just be honest with you, this week there were, there were some times I had to call a brother 
couple of brothers and say, man, I need you to pray for me because I am becoming face to face with my own arrogance and it is not pretty. That's never a fun, fun phone call, but it's always a healing phone call. And can I just tell you from this sermon that we've been walking through right here, how God strengthened my soul, and I'll finish with this. I hope this encourages you, because it, man, it encouraged me this week. You go back to Genesis 15, animals cut up, walkway to the covenant, the altar, all that business, right? When we go to communion in just a couple of minutes, here's what I want you to think about. The deal was, if you didn't keep up your end of the covenant, you would be cut up and cut off from God. And that flaming torch and the burning smoking pot representing the wrath of God would be poured out on you. In Jesus Christ, he went to the cross. He was cut up in his body so that you would not be cut off from God. And that wrath of God that was poured out in Genesis 15, in part, was fully poured out on him. So there would be no wrath left for you. No anger from God. No hell to pay because Jesus paid it all. So this morning, I wonder, man, you may be hearing me talk about this and you're like, Justin, I've been coming to church for a long time. I know a lot about the Bible. I'm familiar with a lot of these things. But as you explain it, I realize I've been living my whole life by performance and thinking the Bible is a set of rules to keep, not a promise from God to love me. And you might have been coming to church your whole life and today is the day where you need to cry out for Jesus to be your savior and Lord and for you to get saved for the very first time. I'll love to talk to you about that. When we go to communion, don't, don't take communion if, if you're not yet a Christian. Just think about the sacrifice of Jesus, broken and poured out for you, and cry out to him and ask him to save you from your sin and free you from your sin. And if you are a Christian, I'd encourage you just to take a, a couple minutes of quiet. Don't dive right into that bread and that juice. You don't need to do that. Think about Jesus being cut up in his body so you wouldn't and cut off from God so you wouldn't and God's wrath being poured out on him so it wouldn't be poured out on you so that when it feels impossible to live by promise and not by performance, that you can bring things to the light, confess it to God and to other brothers and sisters in Christ and find healing for your soul. Promise over performance. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a wonderful Savior. We thank you that you never change, that you never get sick of us, that your love never fails, it never runs out, you never give up on us. That we can never exhaust your love, that your promise trumps our performance. Oh, help us this morning, Jesus, by the power of your spirit to believe in the power of the gospel. Help us not to cling to our own performance. Help us not to deflect how bad we are or inflate how good we are, but just to run to you to cling to the cross and to nothing else, that we, would, that we could be made whole in you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.